Genesis 43, and we are still working our way through the story of Joseph, which we'll see today. It's really the story of Jacob, because uh, Jacob will, will come back into the story. Uh, actually, there's three main characters, but story of, of Joseph, and remind you what it is that we started last week, right? So, so a big chunk of the story of Joseph, it just slows down to a crawl uh, to the point that it's all about Joseph and his brothers reconciling. What his brothers did uh, was unthinkable and evil, and now Joseph's past, after he's finally sort of moved on from all that, has, has now reached his present. So we want to look at two chapters today, which means we, we won't be able to read all of it, and we'll have to do a lot of skipping, uh, which I'm not sure we've done two chapters in our very long, long, long study of Genesis. Um, but uh, these two chapters do, do in fact, uh, go, go hand in hand. So remember, uh, I'm stealing this from Vodi Bauckham, uh, his book on Joseph, pretty helpful. Uh, chapter 42 is the process of examination when, when there is a, a separation of parties. What we see in chapters 43 to 44 is transformation, right? In order for there to be reconciliation, there has to be transformation. And then we'll get revelation, chapters 45 and 46. So Joseph's going to say, here I am, deal with it. And then reunion, chapters 47 to 48. And finally, reconciliation, right? Uh, and now, now those, that pattern is important because often we think forgiveness is reconciliation, and it's not. Or we think reconciliation is trust, which it is not. And, and Joseph helps us to see in a very practical way what that process of, of forgiveness, reconciliation, and trust looks like. Starting the first 15 verses, here the sons of Jacob return to, to Egypt. We'll start in the first few verses here. It says, Now the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, by the way, notice the covenantal land, uh, name. It's not Jacob, it's Israel. That's significant. Uh, why do you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was in answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me. We will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety from my hand. You shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. There's a lot going on here. One, notice that the narrative is going back to the story of Jacob, right? So Joseph's been the main focus, but but now it's going to zero. The camera's catching up where it is. So time has passed, right? So so they get food from Egypt. Joseph sends them back home, and they're eating the food. Now there's someone missing here, right? Think about it. Um, you you go to Egypt. And you have to leave one brother behind. And the agreement is you're going to leave Simeon behind until you come back with your other brother. And when you do that, then Simeon can go back home with you. And what do your brothers do? They go home and they stay as long as they can while you rot in prison. I mean, that's not good. Like, I'm not an expert in this stuff, but that, that doesn't sound very nice. Imagine if you're Simeon. Now, notice here that Simeon is in a Joseph-type scenario. He's... 
He's the uh, second oldest brother, I think. Reuben's the oldest in Simeon. And so uh, he was involved in, of course, in sending Joseph into Egypt, who ended up in prison. Now he is suffering, and he has been forgotten in prison, just as Joseph had been forgotten in prison. So Jacob favors Benjamin so much, he'd rather lose Simeon than to risk losing Benjamin. Hmm. Now, Jacob ain't changed at all, has he? So what do they do? They're going to eat until it's all gone, and then they wait until it's all gone before they finally realize we have to go back. And here the brothers say, look, Dad, you know the deal. We've talked about this here since we got back. The only way we can bring food back is if Benjamin goes with us. And here Jacob goes through this pattern of blame. You know, you're a terrible sons. How could you have done this? All this. So, so in him holding on to Benjamin is really him holding on to his his his. His grief, right? We, we do this. And, and to him, so long as he has Benjamin, he has, he has reasons to live. He loses Benjamin, he loses that. That is a dangerous place to be, a really dangerous place to be. You see with people all the time. Well, I want you to notice, uh, first of all, that in verse 3 and in verse 5, several places, um, Joseph is, is called the man. Because the narrator is reminding you that they don't know this is Joseph. And it adds suspense to it, right? We, the reader, know who the man is. And so we're, we're really involved in this. But to them, it's just the man, not the vizier, just the man. And eventually, starting in, in, in verse 8, Judah takes leadership. So far, it's been Simeon and Reuben. Uh, Reuben has really compromised any chance of leadership because uh, he took one of Jacob's concubines. We've looked at that previously. You can read that on your own. Uh, that's a scandalous thing to do. Simeon is in prison, and now leadership is going to fall to Judah. There are three main characters in these two chapters, Joseph, Jacob, Judah. It's like the, uh, uh, what was that family with all the kids, 19 and count, the Duggars, right? All start with J. Jacob, Joseph, and Judah, right? It's what we have. And here, Judah's going to take a leadership role. And you notice that he says, uh, we, we have to do this, Dad. We have to. It's either this or we die. Now, I get you love Benjamin more than your sons, but I have sons, and, and I have to do all that I can to secure their well-being. We have to go, okay? And he essentially overrides his father. Um, in fact, I want you to notice the language he has here, particularly verse 10. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. That is what we call a rebuke. He's rebuking his father, as he should, right? I'm sure you guys have been through this process where, where you, you, as you become an adult, your relationship with your parents changes. Uh, it's less of an of authority sort of thing to, to a somewhat of an equal thing. And there are places and times when you have to say no, right? Here is one of those where Judah is having to take the mantle of headship, and he's having to say, Dad, I love you, but you have led us poorly here. Your pride and your, your, your heart is really misled us. We have to do this. And so Judah takes the lead, um, and he does so by, by rebuking his, his, his father. Well, Jacob realizes, look, we have no other choice. We've got to go to Egypt, right? Desperate times call for desperate measures. And so Jacob, give him credit, comes up with a plan, okay? He wants everyone to come back safely and with food. And so he does a couple things. One, he sends gifts with them, and that's in verse 11. Now, that's typical in the ancient world. If you're going to come before someone of prominence, like the right hand of Pharaoh, the vizier of Egypt, you had better come with the gifts. 
right? Because if you're going to receive something from, from the man, you had better bring something to him. And uh, I want to highlight what those are. The father Israel said to them, if it must be, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags. Carry a present down to the man, a little balm, a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Now, most of us, this is just gifts, fine, right? That may be a good Valentine's gift for your wife, but, you know, we're not too interested in that. However, in the narrative, that's significant. Three of those gifts, I think it's three, were among the items traded by the Ishmaelites to the Egyptians when they bought Joseph, right? You remember the story, right? That Joseph is, is, is put in the pit. Some traders, uh, Ishmaelites, are coming. They come bearing gifts to trade in Egypt. Three of the gifts listed here, they were selling. And then they add to their gifts that of, of Joseph to trade. You see the irony here, right? Is, is now Jacob is following the same pattern. He's bringing some of these same things through the brothers who are now going to bring it to Joseph. You see, when the Ishmaelites took Joseph and they sold all of that, Joseph's value was equal to that of these of these trade items. That's all he was, this from slavery. Now, Joseph will be receiving the things he was once equated with. It's really good writing. If you want the reference, it's Genesis 37, 25. Well, um, the second thing he has them is he has them take back the money that they found in their bags, but, he, but they double it. So they're going to say, look, I realize we shouldn't have had this money we went back, to show that this was all a big misunderstanding, we're going to double, right? So, so I think that there's some wisdom in that. Um, in fact, verse 12, perhaps it was an oversight. Uh, verse 13, uh, there, he's going to take Benjamin, right? That's, 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 he has to do that. 14, he says to trust in the Lord. Go down to verse 14. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. May he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. Does anyone have a different translation than God Almighty? The strong God. That's oh, message, ain't it? Yeah. Okay. It's El Shaddai. El, of course, short for Elohim, God, Shaddai, Almighty, strong, mighty. Right? Um, El Shaddai shows up in uh, strategic places in Genesis. Uh, Genesis 17. The first time when Abram was 90 years old, God comes to him and he reveals he is God, God Almighty, right? You, you will have, have a son. Uh, chapter 28, chapter 35, and then here in chapter 43. So, so he's saying, look, the God that was there for my grandfather, the God that was there for my father, and the God that was there for me, let him be with you. Because he sees this as a monumental task that only God can complete. So give him some credit. He is trusting in, in the Lord. Um, uh, so they in verse 15 they, they go to Egypt and they stand before the man Joseph their, their brother so they go to Egypt this leads to family dinner and, and really the rest of chapter 43 going into chapter 40, 44 takes place in this uh, scene of fellowship right? so, so remember the boy the, the brothers are clueless as to what to expect when they arrive. And you know Joseph's been planning for this, right? He, he knows they will come back. The famine is serious. They will get hungry. So they're going to come back uh, one way or another. Um, so when he hears that they've returned, 
Joseph orders his steward to prepare dinner, which is interesting. Verse 16, we're introduced to the steward of Joseph's house. That is likely the position Joseph held under Potiphar. So this figure, unnamed, gets a prominent role in the story. In fact, the, the story suggests that this steward is in on the joke. So Joseph is going to scare them to death. Part of me loves that because they're brothers. I get that, right? He's going to scare them to death. And, and what he, so what Joseph is going to do is he's going to test them in, in order to see if they have transformed. Because the relationship cannot move forward unless there's a recognition that sin has been committed. And if these guys are still going through the same pattern of behavior, then, then there's really no room for reconciliation. Right? And this is why he's asking for, Joseph, or for Benjamin to return. Because he, he wants to know, um, is my father still alive? Right? And is dad willing to give him up? And now are my brothers willing to protect him whenever he's away from dad? You remember what story Joseph? Joseph got away from dad, and that was the moment he was at most danger. So you get Benjamin away from dad, how are they going to treat Benjamin? Right? This, these are all tests. Um, so uh, the brothers enter with some trepidation. Verse 18, I think it's kind of funny. They're clueless as to what is about to happen, and they assume the worst. Right? And so and starting in verse 19, uh, they confess to uh, uh, the money, that they return with the money. And the way I read that was, um, when you were a kid, um, did you ever just come clean with what you did, thinking that getting in trouble if you confess would be less trouble than if they found out? You know they're going to find out, right? You know, And you, you have to decide which one will be a worse, less punishment. If I just come out and say it, right, or if I let them find out. Well, I think that's what they're doing. Right? Maybe I'm wrong. Is they just come out and say, look, I know we ended up with your money. I'm sorry. Don't know how it happened. Here, deal with this. Um, and we get Joseph's response starting in verse 23. Uh, Joseph replied, peace to you. The, the Hebrew word there is shalom. Significant word. Jesus will use the same language after his resurrection. Peace to you uh, and do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. And he brought Simeon out to them. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, they had washed their feet. And when he had given their donkey's fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they would eat bread there. Notice that he returned Simeon to them. He, he extends peace to them. Right? This is a big shock to them. And then he has them to wash up. Because they have to wash up in order to be prepared to be in the presence of Joseph. That's exactly what Joseph had to do. When he had to stand in front of Pharaoh. I mean, just, just the, the, how the Bible's written is, is, is really, really fantastic. Um, Do you think the servant washed their feet? Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then uh, they have dinner, and in verse 26 is the second time Joseph's brothers bow down before him. And it's not just any bow. Right, right. It's like, fine, right? It's not a curtsy. Right? Um, now, I want you to notice here that this is, uh, um, it is, in one sense, a fulfillment of his earlier dreams, but it's not a complete fulfillment of it because Jacob's not back yet. The dream was not just that his brothers would bow down to him, but his father would. You remember Jacob's thought, hey, Joe, I, I, I think you need to, 
sit down for a minute, okay? You've, you've had too much caffeine or something. You know, lay off the, the Red Bull. Um, so we're waiting for the moment when Jacob is bowing down. This, this, that's a really, really well-written, crafted story because we know it's close. It's not quite there. Which, by the way, let, let me go back to a point when Judah offered himself. In storytelling, you're writing a, a movie script for Hollywood. If you have someone cock a gun, or if you zero in the camera of them putting a gun in their holster, the rule is the gun had better be used. All right? That's the rule. You don't cock a gun and nothing happened to it. That's just basic storytelling. So when you read J J Judah say, I'll put my life on the line to protect Benjamin, the reader should know Judah's going to have to put his life on the line for Benjamin. And that's the beauty of the story is right now it looks like everything's going to go smooth sailing. I mean, they, were, they thought they were going to get in trouble by the man. Instead, the man has welcomed them into his home for dinner. And, and at the end of the chapter, they're thinking, man, this, things, couldn't, could, things couldn't have gotten worse than they did previously. Things couldn't go better the way they are at, at this point. And um, in verse 27 to 28, he inquires of Jacob. Remember, he hasn't seen his father in, what, 20, 30 years? And in verse 29, he meets Benjamin for the first time. He has to ask, is that your little brother? Because he doesn't know what his little brother looks like. Hmm. I mean, think about how much you change in 20 years. I just had my 20th reunion, right? I, I, I recognized a lot of, there were a few people are like, dude, I ain't seen you in 20 years, and I hope someone says your name, right? <laughs> you know? Uh, but, but, I mean, a lot changes in 20 years. And his, his little brother was small. Now he's a grown man. And thinks he knows that's him, but hasn't seen him in so long. And that's sad. It's so sad. Um, and so he ends up becoming overwhelmed with emotion. He has to excuse himself. Go down to verse 30. Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warmer for his brother, and he sought a place to weep, and he entered his chamber and wept there. Do, do you all have anything there in verse 34? Uh, his compassion grew warm. Do you have anything else? Heart yearned. I like that. Is that New King James? Is that New King James. Yeah, okay. What about the message, John? Deeply moved. Deeply moved. Okay. So it gives us the idea without the nuance of the Hebrew. That's fine. It, it literally means uh, his compassion boiled over. It's a Hebrew idiom. All right. I think we can sort of, sort of get that. Um, um, this phrase is used only one other time in the Old Testament. And we read it a few weeks ago. 1 Kings chapter 3. You remember the story? Two harlots come before King Solomon. And they're trying to decide maternity. You remember what Solomon's solution is? Cut the baby in half. And there, the real mother, it says, The woman whose son was alive said to the king, Because her heart yearned for her son, her heart, her compassion boiled over. She said, she can have him. <clears throat> so you see that this is a deep, deep compassion. This is a maternal compassion for his brother. Right. And, and, and you can understand why. Because this is his only biological brother, and if, if they did this to him, will they do this to Benjamin? And for 20 years, whatever it is, he's not had the answer to that question. And so when he sees him, he just breaks down. He's, he's, he's okay. God's protected him as he's protected me. 
But I believe you get this, right? You get this. You see that Joseph has deep-seated hurts, rightly so. And that if the story was the boys returned, Joseph said, ah, don't worry about it. Let's all have dinner. That's, that's not a real human story. It is a process to heal through our hurts. Um, now, I want you to notice this, verse 33. Um, they sat before him, Joseph, the firstborn among, uh, according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. The men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of, their, of theirs, and they drank and were merry with him. I want you to notice that Joseph is giving hints. He knows something he shouldn't know. Right? And this, this is just, just good storytelling because the, the, Joseph is indicating uh, he knows who they are, and, and, and the boys are picking up on it, but it never crosses their mind. This is their younger brother, Joe. Never crosses their mind. Because how else do you explain he can see them from oldest to youngest? There's no way he can know that information unless he has a prior relationship with them. Hmm. All right? And then he gives the youngest brother, Benjamin, five times the food. Now, Benjamin doesn't need all that food. The point is, is that he lavishes him with favoritism. This is all a test. How will you treat my replacements? He's saying that, you know, when dad lavished me with favoritism, you put me in a pit. And you sold me into slavery. But you're already in Egypt, right? <laughs> yeah. So what are you going to do? What are you going to do, boys? It's a great test. It's a great test. Uh, it's a bit elaborate for my taste. I don't recommend you do this to people. <laughs> but as a narrative, it's a really, really good, good story. Well, this sets the trap in chapter 44, right? And it ends with they're all happy-go-lucky. They're making merry with, with Joe, okay? Brother Joe, the man, and they don't know who he is. But notice it changes starting chapter 44. Then he commanded the steward of his house... Fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. Put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. Bump, bump, bump. While they are merry, maybe a little intoxicated, he goes in to trick them. This is deception. What's the story of Jacob? It's all deception. Jacob deceives his, 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 his brother and his father who is then deceived by his father-in-law, whose, whose daughters deceive him. And then Jacob's sons deceive him when they deceive Joseph. Now Joseph is deceiving his brothers and will later deceive Jacob. Yeah, you're getting that? Yeah, it's, it's, it's I mean, uh, uh, Jerry Springer wishes he had them, right? Um, and so we, 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 we've come to expect this. Now, that word, the silver cup, is significant. It is another Egyptian word. It's not a Hebrew word. It's borrowed from, from Egyptian. We've talked about this. Is If this is written from the perspective of, of Jews sitting around a campfire after they returned from captivity in Babylon, hundreds of years later, they would not use Egyptian words because they wouldn't be familiar with the Egyptian language. This is clearly written by someone who had an intricate knowledge of Egyptian culture and Egyptian language. Now, I think the book of Exodus tells us who that was. I believe in big M Moses authorship. I believe in little M Moses authorship. I think there was edits later. But I don't, there's not many explanations for this. 
But more than that, it's not just an Egyptian word for silver cup. Because it's an Egyptian word, we know what type of cup it is. This is a sacred object used by the Egyptians to foretell the future. Now, this makes sense that Joseph would have this. He is in the position he is because he foretold the future. Now, he did it without these Egyptian objects. But these would have been commonplace, and they would have been used to do that sort of thing. So he takes an Egyptian object, and he uses it to trap these Hebrews, these Asiatics, to use an Egyptian word, right? Because they think he's Egyptian. They're not going to be surprised that he has something like this. And we should note this. It is silver. Notice it's, it, 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 the repetition is, is there in verse 2. Put my cup, the silver cup. See the repetition? It's not just a cup. It is the silver one. Why is that important? Well, Genesis 37, 28. The Midianite traders passed by. They drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit. They're going to, you know, this, this slavery. They sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Here's more silver. Courtesy of the brother you sold. I mean, it's like the Bible. Like, like, like God knows how to write a good story. Ain't it? So you can see the camera, right? When he sold, there's going to be the exchange of silver. And now, here comes the trick. It's the exchange of silver. And notice this. This will come up later. There was that weird verse that when Joseph was in the pits... And we found out last week that Joseph was begging that they would let him out. What were the brothers doing? Sharing a meal. What did Joseph just do? He shared a meal. Set him for the trap. I mean, it's such good storytelling. It's so good. So good. Just read the Bible as a story and, and you'll love it. Now, um, uh, I want to notice this language uh, in verse, verse 4. Uh, they had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? So you, you see the, the plan is, right? You're going to send them off. Thank you for coming, stopping by. Tell your dad I said hi. And then Joseph's like, Hold on. Hold on. Go, right? Uh, I, I've got the little Australian Shepherd, good dog, Katie, uh, and a bit ornery, but good dog. And she loves fetch, obviously. And so um, she sees her ball. She goes absolutely. That dog can jump. Let me tell you, that, that dog's LeBron James jumping, okay? Spud Webb jumping for, for those who like basketball when it was good. And, and um, when you throw, you have to say, sit, right? And she'll sit. And she is just about ready to launch into go and get this thing, right? And the minute that arm goes back, she's gone. Right? The ball's not even left your hand, right? She's gone, right? She's doing this thing, you know? And so you just have to throw it real hard and real fast. Well, that's what the steward's job is. Wait here, and then the minute he says go, hunt them down, he hunts them down. Now, once you notice this, that what he's to ask them is, why have you repaid evil for good? That phrase is found nowhere else in the Bible. There is a phrase like it in the Bible. And it is the seminal verse in the story of Joseph. Genesis 50, verse 20. As for you, Joseph tells his brothers, you meant evil against me. God meant it for good. You see, he's, he's playing on this. So he's going to accuse them of taking the goodness of Joseph and turning it into evil. And then he'll flip it and say, what you meant that was evil, let's not call it anything else, God used it for his good. 
I mean, it's, it's just so, so good. So good. Well, uh, this is a serious accusation, by the way. Uh, they could be thrown into prison and possibly even executed for theft. Okay. I'm reminded of the story of Les Miserables. Uh, I'm not a musical guy at all uh, because I have a Y chromosome. And um, I can tolerate Hamilton because of my daughter. Um, and uh, Les Miserables I do like. You know when Jean Valjean, uh, he, he, he goes in and he's welcomed in by the priest. And, and when the priest goes to sleep, he steals all the silver. You remember the cops catch him, bring him back, and the man says, oh, there you are. You didn't take the rest of the silver with you. It was an act of grace, which, by the way, this is free. That's when Jean Valjean uh, rips the uh, statement of, um, of, of prisoner against him. Remember, he can't do a lot of things because he's, he's a prisoner, right? He has a record. Whenever he rips that, it is him becoming a new creature. That's how he becomes mayor. Y'all have never seen Les Miserables. We'll move on. Um, so uh, it's, it's a, I don't know what to do with the French Revolution, Revolution part of that story, but that part is all about grace. It's so good. Anyways, so um, he catches up with them. They, they defend their honor. Um, and in fact, they go so far as to say, how dare you can, can, uh, accuse us of stealing from the man who was so kind to us? In fact, whoever has the silver cup, you can kill him. You can kill him. Guess who has the silver cup? It's old Ben. Little Benny has it. And when, of course, the steward's in on this. He searches all of them, saves Benny for last, because he knows where it is. Uh-oh. Should I kill him now? This is a tough moment. This is what Joseph wants them to know. They were willing to throw away Joseph's life, and frankly, they're willing to throw away Simeon's life. They're going to throw away Benjamin's? Has anything changed with this family? Anything changed? Well, the brothers beg for mercy. Go down to verse, uh, chapter 44, verse 14. Then Judah, there he is in leadership. Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house. He was still there. They fell before him to the ground. It's the third time. Third time we've seen this. Different context with each. Uh... Verse 15, Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? Now, this is not saying that Joseph did this. This is all part of the deception. He no more does divination than uh, Jacob had hairy arms. Okay, it's part of the, the deception. Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also, in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go in peace to your father. Notice this. is Judas says, We are to blame. Joseph says, No, he is to blame. The rest of you, go home. Go home. No, no, no punishment to you. You didn't do anything wrong. It's Benji. You see, you see this is such good writing. I mean, it's, it's, gosh, it's good, isn't it? It's good. And, and when it comes to justice, this is exactly what should happen. The guilty should be punished. The innocent should go free. So what we get in verses 18 to 34 is Judah's act of substitution. So you already know where this is going to go, right? Um, he, Judah intercedes on Benjamin's behalf. Verses 18 to 32 is a very compelling speech from Judah to Joseph on behalf of Benjamin. Um, you can read it. It's, 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 you know, he goes through basically... That by taking 
our brother, you're essentially killing him. In our eyes, we'd have his funeral because we'd never see him again. But also you'd be killing our father. And what Judah does is he says, if, if you'll let Benjamin go, you, you can take me. I offer myself so that, so that the innocent man will suffer so that the guilty man can go free. That's basically it. And that's made very clear in verses 33 to 34. If you go down near the end of the chapter. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. Let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. This, this is so, so good. Now, there's some irony here. Um, for one, remember that Reuben offered his two sons to protect Benjamin. Judah offers himself. Reuben offers someone else so he doesn't have to take the blame nor bear the responsibility. Judah takes both. Treat it as if I were the thief. And treat him as if he were the innocent party. So what do we do with this? Well, you can probably guess what we're going to do with this. Um, if, if the first week was examination, or last week was examination, this is transformation. One, uh, two things. First of all, we need to note this, that people do in fact change. People do change. There are two contradictory uh, narratives we have at the national level. So by that I mean your neighbors hold to this. And if you're not careful, you're going to hold to this. One is that humans are fluid. Look at the gender and sexuality debate that we have. Um, I'm a male today, female tomorrow. Might decide to be male again. Depends on, depends on how the wind is blowing. right? Uh, it is fluid. How I feel determines everything. But at the same time, you may remember that we were told for many years we are our genes. And you can't escape it. You remember the search for the gay gene? So the way we've put it is that um, homosexuality, or heterosexuality for that matter, is genetic. Gender is fluid. Right? Well, that makes no sense. But, but we're trying to believe both narratives simultaneously, and they're contradictory. One is that you can't change who you are. The other is you can change who you are. And these have been at war with each other for, for quite a bit. Now, the Bible comes and says, first and foremost, you are a slave to your sin. And therefore, you have to be liberated by the finished work of Christ. So we would say transformation happens only by the work of the Spirit. This is the story of the Valley of the Dry Bones. Because dry bones can't put themselves into an army unless the Spirit makes them. The Creator creates an army. This is the story of Jesus healing the blind and, uh, and, and uh, uh, rescuing the demonized and raising the dead. This is an act of grace by which people change. They were this they were that. Christianity has always believed that sinners can be transformed. But that happens not through therapy and pills, but through the finished work of Christ upon the cross. Um, I'm going to quote a rapper. Is that okay? Right? Yeah, I bet. I bet yeah. I, I bet, everyone's paying attention now, either because you like hip hop or because you're like, we may have to fire this cat, right? So. No, 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 no. Pagan. Okay, just, just, uh, you know. Um, so while Lil Wayne was in prison, if you don't know who Lil Wayne is, do not Google them or his lyrics. Um, but when he was in prison, he was reading his Bible, 2011. Can I read you a quote? You guys are like, I did not expect Lil Wayne, right? <laughs> That's why one of our deacons had to sneak out. Um, um, no. Um, let me read you Lil Wayne. Okay. 
When he was reading the Bible, he said, quote, It was deep. I like the parts where some character was once this, but he ended up being that. Like, he'd be dissing Jesus. He'd be dissing Jesus, then he ends up being a saint. That was cool. Now, we can joke about the, you know, it's not language that we would use from the South, but not like we, we can brag about our language, right? We're, we're rednecks, but actually I think he gets to the heart of the Bible, don't you? That when Christ intervenes, we go from this to that. From this to that, rap song. Uh, this to that. That's Alice Cooper. So Alice, <laughs> I was watching a, a bit with him where he was, taught, you know, he was he's a Christian, you know. Um, it's funny you mention that. I was just this morning I was watching a thing on Alice Cooper. Yeah. And, you know, interviewing him. Yeah. <laughs> so look at the story. Look at who changed. Jacob a little bit, and that he was willing to send Benjamin to Egypt. That's a significant change. Forced into it, a significant change, to the point to where he trusts in God's providential care over his son. That's a huge change. Judah has changed. You remember, what did we know about Judah before chapter 43? He was a terrible human being. Go back to chapter 38 with his, his daughter-in-law, whom he treated like a harlot. And impregnated. That's Judah. But now look at him. And then we can see the change in Joseph, right? Slowly. He's getting to the point of reconciliation. His past is coming back. So people do change. But they change to the finished work of Christ. And that's the second point. second point is change comes by faith in Jesus. Look, it's very clear where Jesus is in the story, isn't it? Is it any accident that it is Judah who offers himself in the place of the guilty one? For it is Judah's descendant, a man by the name of Jesus of Nazareth, who will do the same. I've shared this story with you before, but it's the story of Barabbas. Barabbas is probably a domestic terrorist, perhaps loosely connected with the Zealots, who were just terrorist organizations. You remember that, that Pilate brings up the worst of criminals, um, uh, Barnabas, who, who probably had, or Barabbas rather, who probably had blood on his hand, Jewish blood on his hand. And so Pilate thinks, here's a man who's been handed over out of, out of envy. Yes, but everyone likes him. I mean, he, he healed that dude. He fed those people. Yeah, they're going to, surely he's more popular. Which one should, should I put, the best or the worst? Which one should go free? And we, the reader, assume it is the best. But the mob comes and says, no, give us one of us. And so you'll notice that when Jesus arrives to Calvary, there are two thieves waiting for him. And who are those thieves? They're associates with, with Barabbas. See, there were supposed to be three crosses that day long before they ever arrested Jesus. It was to be the two thieves and Barabbas. But because Jesus was handed over, Jesus suffers the punishment reserved for Barabbas. That was Barabbas' cross he was carrying. And because of that, in the eyes of the law, Barabbas is as innocent as if he had never done any wrong. Because the punishment has been paid. You can't be punished for a crime that's already been satisfied. Barabbas is a free man. He should be a new man. That's what Judah does here. He recognizes Benjamin is guilty, but he offers himself, treat me as the guilty party. Treat the guilty as if they are innocent. Whereas theologians like to put it, Jesus paid a price he did not owe because we owe a price we cannot pay. That is the gospel in a nutshell. 
If we want things to change, it won't come from Washington, D.C. or Frankfort, Kentucky. It'll come by the propagation of the gospel through the work of the Spirit by which sinners are brought to repentance by faith. That's the story in a nutshell. So it starts with examination, and it moves to transformation. At the heart of transformation is the gospel. Look, if you want to find reconciliation with people where there's tension, I'm convinced there is always hope of reconciliation when two people take the gospel seriously. Take out the gospel, and I don't have a solution for you. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 5 in the context of reconciliation. For our sake, Christ was made, uh, God made Christ to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That we are declared righteous, though we are guilty. And once we are declared righteous, the work of the Spirit makes us righteous. And that's the Christian journey in a nutshell. This is good stuff. Danny's not here. We miss anything? <coughs> All right, we made it to two chapters on a Wednesday night. I tell you what, you guys didn't think it was possible. We did.